Section 9 of Great Epochs in American History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lewis Heeman, Louisville, Kentucky. Great Epochs in American History, Volume 3. The French War and the Revolution, 1745 to 1782 by Francis Whiting Halsey. Section 9. The Stamp Act and its Repeal, 1765. By William E. H. Lecky, the English historian. The Stamp Act, when its ultimate consequences are considered, must be deemed one of the most momentous legislative acts in the history of mankind. But in England, it passed almost completely unnoticed. The Wilkes excitement absorbed public attention, and no English politician appears to have realized the importance of the measure. It is scarcely mentioned in the contemporary correspondence of Horace Walpole, of Grenville, or of Pitt. Burke, who was not yet a member of the House of Commons, afterward declared that he had followed the debate from the gallery, and that he had never heard a more languid one in the House, that not more than two or three gentlemen spoke against the bill, that there was but one division in the whole course of the discussion, and that the minority in that division was not more than thirty-nine or forty. In the House of Lords, he could not remember that there had been either a debate or division, but he was certain that there was no protest. In truth, the measure, although it was by no means as unjust or as unreasonable as has been alleged, and although it might perhaps in some periods of colonial history have passed almost unperceived, did unquestionably infringe upon a principle which the English race both at home and abroad have always regarded with a peculiar jealousy. The doctrine that taxation and representation are in free nations inseparably connected, that constitutional government is closely connected with the rights of property, and that no people can be legitimately taxed except by themselves or their representatives lay at the very root of the english conception of political liberty the same principle that had led the english people to provide so carefully in the great charter in a well-known statute of edward i and in the bill of rights that no taxation should be drawn from them except by the english parliament the same principle which had gradually invested the representative branch of the legislature with the special and peculiar function of granting supplies led the colonists to maintain that their liberty would be destroyed if they were taxed by a legislature in which they had no representatives and which sat three thousand miles from their shore it was a principle which had been respected by henry the eighth and elizabeth in the most arbitrary moments of their reigns and its violation by charles i was one of the chief causes of the rebellion. The principle which led Hampton to refuse to pay twenties of ship money was substantially the same as that which inspired the resistance to the Stamp Act. It is quite true that this theory, like that of the social contract, which has also borne a great part in the history of political liberty, will not bear a severe and philosophical examination. The opponents of the American claims were able to reply with undoubted truth that at least nine-tenths of the English people had no votes, that the great manufacturing towns which contributed so largely to the public burdens were for the most part wholly unrepresented, that the minority in Parliament voted only in order to be systematically overruled, and that, 
in a country where the constituencies were as unequal as in England, that minority often represented the large majority of the voters. It was a first principle of the Constitution that a member of Parliament was the representative not merely of his own constituency, but also of the whole empire. Men connected with, or at least specially interested in the colonies, always found their way into Parliament. And the very fact that the colonial arguments were maintained with the transcendent power within its walls was sufficient to show that the colonies were virtually represented. A parliament elected by a considerable part of the English people, drawn from the English people, sitting in the midst of them, and exposed to their social and intellectual influence, was assumed to represent the whole nation, and the decision of its majority was assumed to be the decision of the whole. If it be asked how these assumptions could be defended, it can only be answered that they had rendered possible a form of government which had arrested the incursions of the royal prerogative had given England a longer period and a larger measure of self-government than was enjoyed by any other great European nation, and had created a public spirit sufficiently powerful to defend the liberties that had been won. Such arguments, however worthless they might appear to a lawyer or a theorist, ought to be very sufficient to a statesman. Manchester and Sheffield had no more direct representation in Parliament than Boston or Philadelphia, but the relations of unrepresented Englishmen and of colonists to the English Parliament were very different. Parliament could never long neglect the fierce beatings of the waves of popular discontent around its walls. It might long continue perfectly indifferent to the wishes of a population 3,000 miles from the English shore. When Parliament taxed the English people, the taxing body itself felt the weight of the burden it imposed. But Parliament felt no part of the weight of colonial taxation, and had therefore a direct interest in increasing it. The Stamp Act received the royal assent on March 22, 1765, and it was to come into operation on the 1st of November following. The long delay, which had been granted in the hope that it might lead to some proposal of compromise from America, had been sedulously employed by skillful agitators in stimulating the excitement. And when the news arrived that the Stamp Act had been carried, the train was fully laid, and the indignation of the colonies rose at once into a flame. A Congress of Representatives of Nine States was held at New York, and in an extremely able state paper, they drew up the case of the colonies. They acknowledged that they owed allegiance to the Crown, and, quote, all due subordination to that august body, the Parliament of Great Britain, end quote. But they maintained that they were entitled to all the inherent rights and liberties of natural-born subjects, quote, that it is inseparably essential to the freedom of a people and the undoubted right of Englishmen that no taxes be imposed on them but with their own consent, given personally or by their representatives, end quote that the colonists, quote, are not, and from their local circumstances cannot be, represented in the House of Commons of Great Britain, end quote. That the only representatives of the colonies, and therefore the only persons constitutionally competent to tax them, were the members chosen in the colonies by themselves, and, quote, that all supplies of the crown being free gifts from the people, it is unreasonable and inconsistent with the principles and spirit of the British Constitution for the people of Great Britain to grant to His Majesty the property of the colonies. End quote. 
a petition to the king and memorials to both houses of parliament were drawn up embodying these views. It was not, however, only by such legal measures that the opposition was shown. A furious outburst of popular violence speedily showed that it would be impossible to enforce the act. In Boston, Oliver, the secretary of the province, who had accepted the office of stamp distributor, was hung in effigy on a tree in the main street of the town. The building, which had been erected as a stamp office, was leveled with the dust. The house of Oliver was attacked, plundered, and wrecked, and he was compelled by the mob to resign his office and to swear beneath the tree on which his effigy had been so ignominiously hung that he never would resume it. A few nights later, the riots recommenced with redoubled fury. The houses of two of the leading officials connected with the Admiralty Court and with the Custom House were attacked and rifled, and the files and records of the Admiralty Court were burned. The mob, intoxicated with the liquors which they had found in one of the cellars they had plundered, next turned to the house of Hutchinson, the lieutenant governor and chief justice of the province. Hutchinson was not only the second person in rank in the colony, he was also a man who had personal claims of the highest kind upon his countrymen. Although Hutchinson was opposed to the policy of the Stamp Act, the determination with which he acted as Chief Justice in supporting the law soon made him obnoxious to the mob. He had barely time to escape with his family when his house, which was the finest in Boston, was attacked and destroyed. His plate, his furniture, his pictures, the public documents in his possession, and a noble library which he had spent thirty years in collecting, were plundered and burned. The flame rapidly spread. In the newly annexed provinces, indeed and at most of the West India Islands, the act was received without difficulty. But in nearly every American colony, those who had consented to be stamp distributors were hung and burned in effigy, and compelled by mob violence to resign their posts. The houses of many who were known to be supporters of the act or sympathizers with the government were attacked and plundered. Some were compelled to fly from the colonies, and the authority of the home government was exposed to every kind of insult. In New York, the effigy of the governor was paraded with that of the devil round the town and then publicly burned and threatening letters were circulated menacing the lives of those who distributed stamps. When the 1st of November arrived, the bells were tolled as for the funeral of a nation. The flags were hung half-mast high, the shops were shut, and the Stamp Act was hawked about with the inscription, quote, The Folly of England and the Ruin of America, end quote. The newspapers were obliged by the new law to bear the stamp, which probably contributed much to the extreme virulence of their opposition, and many of them now appeared with a death's head in the place where the stamp should have been. It was found not only impossible to distribute stamps, but even impossible to keep them in the colonies, for the mob seized on every box which was brought from England and committed it to the flames. Stamps were required for the validity of every legal document. Yet in most of the colonies, not a single sheet of stamped paper could be found. The law courts were for a time closed, and almost all business was suspended. At last the governors, considering the impossibility of carrying on public business or protecting property under these conditions, 
took the law into their own hands and issued letters authorizing non-compliance with the act on the ground that it was absolutely impossible to procure the requisite stamps in the colony. Parliament met on December 17, 1765, and the attitude of the different parties was speedily disclosed. A powerful opposition, led by Grenville and Bedford, strenuously urged that no relaxation or indulgence should be granted to the colonists. In two successive sessions, the policy of taxing America had been deliberately affirmed, and if Parliament now suffered itself to be defied or intimidated, its authority would be forever at an end. The method of reasoning by which the Americans maintained that they could not be taxed by a Parliament in which they were not represented might be applied with equal plausibility to the Navigation Act and to every other branch of imperial legislation for the colonies and it led directly to the disintegration of the empire. The supreme authority of Parliament chiefly held the different parts of that empire together. The right of taxation was an essential part of the sovereign power. The colonial constitutions were created by royal charter, and it could not be admitted that a king, while retaining his own sovereignty over certain portions of his dominions, could by a mere exercise of his prerogative withdraw them wholly or in part from the authority of the British Parliament. It was the right and the duty of the imperial legislature to determine in what proportions the different parts of the empire should contribute to the defense of the whole, and to see that no one part evaded its obligations and unjustly transferred its share to the others. The conduct of the colonies, in the eyes of these politicians, admitted of no excuse or palliation. The disputed right of taxation was established by a long series of legal authorities, and there was no real distinction between internal and external taxation. It now suited the Americans to describe themselves as apostles of liberty, and to denounce England as an oppressor. It was a simple truth that England governed her colonies more liberally than any other country in the world. They were the only existing colonies which enjoyed real political liberty. Their commercial system was more liberal than that of any other colonies. They had attained, under British rule, to a degree of prosperity which was surpassed in no quarter of the globe. England had loaded herself with debt in order to remove the one great danger to their future she cheerfully bore the whole burden of their protection by sea. At the Peace of Paris, she made their interests the very first object of her policy, and she only asked them in return to bear a portion of the cost of their own defense. Somewhat more than eight millions of Englishmen were burdened with a national debt of a hundred and forty million pounds. The united debt of about two millions of Americans was now less than eight hundred thousand pounds. The annual sum the colonists were asked to contribute in the form of stamp duties was less than £100,000, with an express provision that no part of that sum should be devoted to any other purpose than the defense and protection of the colonies. And the country which refused to bear this small tax was so rich that in the space of three years it had paid off 1,755,000 of its debt. No demand could be more moderate and equitable than that of England, 
and amid all the high-sounding declarations that were wafted across the Atlantic, it was not difficult to perceive that the true motive of the resistance was of the vulgarest kind. It was a desire to pay as little as possible, to throw as much as possible upon the mother country. Nor was the mode of resistance more respectable. The plunder of private homes and custom houses, mob violence connived at by all classes and perfectly unpunished, agreements of merchants to refuse to pay their private debts in order to attain political ends. If this was the attitude of America within two years of the Peace of Paris, if these were the first fruits of the new sense of security which British triumphs in Canada had given, could it be doubted that concessions would only be the prelude to new demands? Already the custom house officers were attacked by the mobs almost as fiercely as the stamp distributors. These were the chief arguments on the side of the late ministers. Pitt, on the other hand, rose from his sickbed, and in speeches of extraordinary eloquence, which produced an amazing effect on both sides of the Atlantic, he justified the resistance of the colonists. He stood apart from all parties, and, while he declared that, quote, every capital measure, end quote, of the late ministry was wrong, he ostentatiously refused to give his confidence to their successors. He maintained in the strongest terms the doctrine that self-taxation is the essential and discriminating circumstance of political freedom. The task of the ministers in dealing with this question was extremely difficult. The great majority of them desired ardently the repeal of the Stamp Act. But the wishes of the king, the abstentation of Pitt, and the divided condition of parties had compelled Rockingham to include in his government Charles Townsend, Barrington, and Northington, who were all strong advocates of the taxation of America, and Northington took an early opportunity of delivering an invective against the colonies, which seemed especially intended to prolong the exasperation. The Stamp Act had already produced evils far outweighing any benefits that could flow from it. To enforce it over a vast and thinly populated country, and in the face of the universal and vehement opposition of the people, had proved hitherto impossible, and would always be difficult, dangerous, and disastrous. It might produce rebellion. It would certainly produce permanent and general disaffection, great derangement of commercial relations, a smothered resistance which could only be overcome by a costly and extensive system of coercion. It could not be wise to convert the Americans into a nation of rebels who were only waiting for a European war to throw off their allegiance. Yet this would be the natural and almost inevitable consequence of persisting in the policy of Grenville. The debates on this theme were among the fiercest and longest ever known in Parliament. The former ministers opposed the repeal at every stage, and most of those who were under the direct influence of the king plotted busily against it. Nearly a dozen members of the king's household, nearly all the bishops, nearly all the Scotch, nearly all the Tories, voted against the ministry. And in the very agony of the contest, Lord Strange spread abroad the report that he had heard from the king's own lips that the king was opposed to the repeal. Rockingham acted with great decision. He insisted on accompanying Lord Strange into the king's presence, and in obtaining from the king a written paper stating that he was in favor of the repeal rather than the enforcement of the act, though he would have preferred its modification to either course. 
the great and manifest desire of the commercial classes throughout england had much weight the repeal was carried through the house of commons brought up by no less than two hundred members to the lords and finally carried amid the strongest expressions of public joy burke described it as quote, an event that caused more universal joy throughout the british dominions than perhaps any other that can be remembered End of section nine.